The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. And Trish is here as our program host. So, if you have questions later at the end of the program about the center, you can check with Trish, who's sitting over there next to the door. And uh, usually at the end of the month, I just remind people how the center operates. Most of you know this, but there may be a few new people here. And since the center began in 1993, we, uh, just to be in the spirit of the monasteries that this tradition of Buddhist practice comes out of in places like Thailand and Sri Lanka and Burma, where all the teachings are offered freely, we thought, well, we should probably fall in line with our spiritual ancestors. So we started to operate that way. And uh, generally what that means, we don't talk too much about money and we don't have suggested donations because we're trying to operate in this circle of giving and receiving. And uh, here's how it works. When you come here and you take a program or you just even remember Common Ground, you want to feel whatever that feels like to be part of the community or having received whatever you received coming here, and let it, in a sense, touch your heart. Let that generosity, and it's here because people have done whatever they've done to make this place happen, and then we get to be the recipient of all those people doing whatever they did to make this place happen. And our job is just to let it touch our heart, like, well, that's a really nice thing, that everything's offered freely, that this place exists, that... The Buddha taught 2,500 years ago, and folks have been doing their own practice all these generations, passing the teachings down generation by generation, and that I can show up and learn a few things and live in a better way. That's great. And then naturally, you might at some point, some of you at least, feel like giving back, not because you have to, because you don't have to, right? Because it's a free gift, no strings attached. There's no expectation to give. So if you do feel like giving back, volunteering your time, contributing money, then that you're doing that because it makes you happy. It feels good, feels right, brings you alive, makes you alive. So then your job is to listen to that and to find a way to express that natural feeling of generosity in a way that works in your life. You know, and everybody, we might have 80 people here tonight, Everybody's situation is different. The amount of time you have, the amount of money you have. So how you do that, you have to pay attention. You have to be aware. If you give too much, you'll notice it doesn't feel good. If you try to ignore the feeling of generosity, that won't feel good either. So what feels good? What makes you happy? So this way of operating, we've been doing it now for almost 25 years, It's really dependent on people being interested in being happy. Happy because you're noticing how nice it is to receive this place as a free gift only because people have been generous and made it happen and now we get to receive it, no strings attached. And happy because we found a way to contribute, to support, even if it's just supporting with our good wishes. That makes us happy. It feels good. Like we leave feeling like, oh yeah, that feels good. 
So there's more information. You can go online or there's a sheet of paper out by the donation bowls or talk to Trish or me at the end of the program and we'll fill you in with the details. And we began uh, last week with uh, a topic that we'll be continuing probably for about half a year. And if you'd like a complimentary text, you can pick up Guy Armstrong's new book. It just came out in February, Emptiness, A Practical Guide for Meditators. Guy Armstrong is a wonderful teacher at Spirit Rock in Northern California, also one of the guiding teachers out at IMS in Massachusetts, a couple places that I have done a lot of practice and teach sometimes. And uh, this is a wonderful book that Guy has created, and we'll be following some of the content So if you'd like a complimentary text, you can, but you don't need to have it. And uh, Moon Palace Books, a nice independent bookstore, seven blocks south of here, something like 33rd in Minnehaha, right next to Peace Coffee. And they'll sell it to you for 20% off uh, if you just tell them you're from Common Ground. And they have copies available most of the time. And when they run out, they'll get more copies. You might want to call them just to make sure they have a copy in stock before you drive down there. So we began last week, and as you might expect, I mean, the word is very provocative, but the Buddha was really a master at using language. You know, in the tradition, there were other people who had the same insight as the Buddha, the same understanding. But what makes a Buddha, the Buddha is sort of a technical title, Somebody who wakes up, who has deep insight and did it without somebody else's teachings, right? So the first person. Now, there were Buddhas before the Buddha, but those teachings had been forgotten. So the Buddha, this Buddha, historic Buddha, did it without help. So that's one thing you have to do to get that title. And then you have to be able to articulate what happened to you so that other people are supported in doing the practice and having the same insight you had. If you do those two things, you do it without any help, and you can articulate, because you can have deep insight and not be that helpful for anybody else. I mean, you might just, in terms of modeling, being a really wise, relaxed, fearless, compassionate human being, that could be quite supportive. But in terms of, you know, articulating, like how somebody should see their mind, understand their mind in a way that would really support the awakening process, not everyone who has deep insight is good at that. So if you can do both of those things, wake up without any help and articulate it, then you get the title Buddha. You couldn't even be a Buddha now because you've already heard these teachings. You could become fully awake, but you can't be a Buddha until everyone forgets the Buddhist teachings, right? And then then there's a possibility of being a Buddha. So the Buddha was really skilled at using this word sunya or sunyata, the Pali Sanskrit words for emptiness or empty. And it's really, as I mentioned last week, it's really meant to be pragmatic, like to be curious about the mind. Is this mind, like you can check right now, the mind, the space of the mind, the space of the heart, is it empty of distraction or not? Right? Is the mind present or not? Is it 
caught up in, you know, lost in thought or not? Is it colored or obscured by greediness or fear or aversion, distractedness or not? So when you look at how the Buddha used this teaching concept of emptiness, it was more in the context of the mind being empty. Empty of what? Well, empty of self-centered activity. Empty of the idea of possession. You know, what the self has, who I am, what belongs to me. Empty of that sort of self-centered mental activity. So the the reason it's an important concept, concept, even for people who are relative beginners, is it's really not possible to get a sense of what mindful awareness is about without having a sense of where we're going with the practice, like why be present. You know, the whole point of cultivating present moment awareness, sustaining present moment awareness, stabilizing, balancing present moment awareness, is so we can notice the difference of this mind, the space of the present moment, the space of the mind, the space of the heart, whether it's full of self-centered activity, wanting, hating, fearing, not wanting to be here, bored, or whether it's empty. And we consider it a very significant insight in the course of practice for the mind to wake up and see a moment of mind, the space of the mind, when it's empty of neurotic self-centered activity. So a question like to you, or a question even to myself is, does this mind, does your mind know that experience? Has your mind seen the mind when it isn't obscured or colored or burdened by neurotic self-centered activity? Have you seen that mind? Have you recognized it? Did it stand out? The reason we want to learn to recognize those moments, I mean, in the same way, I mean, I know you all have an answer to this question. Have you seen your mind, the space of the mind, the space of the heart, the space of the present moment? Have you seen it strongly obscured by neurotic, self-centered, narrow-minded, fixed view. Yeah, we all know that experience, right? But have we seen the other end of the spectrum, right? So at this end, a mind that is very bound up, very narrow, very fixed, very burdened by greed, anger, and delusion, by some kind of neurotic activity, shame, hatred, self-hatred. So... And we know that those moments, you know, seeing, knowing the mind in those moments, it, like, there's suffering there. Well, maybe this isn't one of those moments, so maybe this is somewhere in the middle where, yeah, it still feels like there's still some self-consciousness, still some, like, trying to, me trying to get what Mark is talking about, or me can't wait to be home, or, you know, but not terribly neurotic activity. So a little bit of more able to notice the space, but the space is still somewhat 
obscured by neurotic activity. Like, should have I should I have come tonight? Or does everybody else know more about what's going on here than I do? And then maybe you know, there's a there's a mind that is unobscured in this moment, right? And part of a, the mind being unobscured is the mind knows the absence, knows that the mind is empty of neurotic activity. So it's not just that the mind is empty of neurotic activity, but there is awareness, there's mindful awareness, there's that reflective knowing this mind is empty of neurotic activity. Because it's not about just having a moment of freedom, it's about understanding the path, understanding the way, right? understanding what it is that obscures the mind and what it is for the mind to be free of those obscurations. Because what happens if you just sort of randomly or without a clear awareness, without a stable awareness that can comprehend what just happened, not comprehend in an intellectual way, but in a sort of observing in a continuous way what what the mind is, free of greed, anger, and delusion. If you just sort of bump into a, a moment where the mind is relatively free, is you'll probably think, oh, this is a really special place. You know, maybe you're walking in the woods and you don't have any worries and greed, anger, and delusion sort of falls away and the mind sees, notices this empty space, right? The mind being empty of neurotic activity. But you might, then the neurotic activity might kick in and you might think these woods are really special. Like you tell yourself a story about what just happened or I had a really good lunch or this person really loves me and that's why I'm feeling so good. Right? We tell ourselves, I mean, not a terrible story, but it kind of, we become imprisoned again in our thoughts about things, even if it's a relatively wholesome thought. We miss the opportunity to learn something about the underlying nature of the mind, the empty nature of the mind. Because the truth is, you know, most of us, only know the mind, this half of the spectrum, from really neurotic, the mind really overwhelmed, covered over with neurotic activity, to the point where the mind is sort of overrun, overcome by neurotic activity, but but not so toxic, right? And this is the spectrum of our life. We don't really know anything except this sort of section of what's possible for the mind. And what the Buddha is pointing to is learning the whole spectrum all the way to the nth degree where we say this mind, this heart, is in this moment empty of greed, empty of any kind of aversion or fear, anger, any kind of distractedness or denial, And the mind is reflectively aware, oh, this is the mind that is empty of greed, anger, and delusion. This is the mind that is empty of self-centered drama. 
This is a mind that is alive, engaged, living a life, but that living, that engagement, that awareness isn't obscured by self-centered mental activity. Right? So that's what we're going to be talking about for these next 20 weeks or so. How the Buddha, these are really the pointing out instructions from the Buddha. So there's sort of two things the Buddha taught. He taught a basic method, and there's many aspects to this method, but the primary one is the continuity of present moment awareness. And he taught where the practice goes, where, what it leads to. Like the difference between suffering and non-suffering. Right, the two ends of the pole, let's say, or the two ends of the spectrum. Like what suffering is, it's not just when you bump your toe or are really cold or you lose somebody you love. It's the real suffering that pervades the mind is when the mind is burdened by its self-centered, neurotic, constricting, mental activity. Because you could be over here still having a human life, having relationships, still bumping your toe, still losing people you love, but you could still be at this end where the mind, the heart is empty of neurotic, self-centered activity. Doesn't mean your toe doesn't hurt. Doesn't mean there's an emotional feeling of loss when you've lost somebody you've loved. It just means that those experiences of throbbing in the toe or aching in your heart, you know, whether it's the pain of loss or the pain of stubbing your toe, that there's no self-centered reverberation around the initial pain of loss or the pain of bumping your head or bumping your toe or being cold or whatever the challenging or could be beautiful experience is, right? Because we can have a lot of self-centered suffering when really good experience is happening. Like, oh, I want this to last forever. You know, or what am I going to do with the lottery that I won? <laughs> right? I mean, there's, we suffer just as much around pleasant experience sometimes as we do around unpleasant experience. Wanting it to last, wondering what's going to threaten the good thing that's happened to us. We can get tight. I mean, human beings, we have this amazing capacity to get tight about everything. Even when nothing is happening, we can get tight about that. Like, nothing's happening. (laughs) One of the teachers I've learned a lot from, this Western Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sumedho, He says in one of his teachings, you know, everybody kind of likes the idea of peace, but when they actually experience peace, they might find it boring. It's like, wait a minute. It's like the idea, you know, from an egoic, self-centered, neurotic place, we might think that what will make us happy isn't like peace, but like having everything. I mean that's but it but you can bet that what a neurotic mind thinks will make me happy thinks think what will make it happy you can bet that it will star you or me or mine right right it's like 
Because when things get really simple and peaceful, initially, it's like an acquired taste. Is this what the heart really seeks, really desires? Is this okay? So we have to really get the first thing we're going to be asked to do, like we hear this teaching of a mind that's empty of greed, anger, and delusion. Nibbana. That's what nibbana, nirvana, awakening, that's what that word means. It's actually a very, at the time of the Buddha, it's a very common word for a fire going out, extinguishing of a fire, right? Can you imagine somebody building a spiritual tradition around you know, a fire going out, like that being the sort of primary image or simile, a fire being blown out, going out. It's really provocative, or emptiness, a mind that is empty, a great anger and delusion. But what really helps is to get very familiar with a mind that's full of greed, anger, and delusion. Really see that when you're full of worry, full of neurotic fear, full of wanting something to happen, full of controlling energy, full of disappointment, and really get, oh yeah, that's not the way. That's not the way. Because then immediately knowing this really well, don't we have a sense, I mean, even if it's mostly intellectual, like, Empty of that, not that. Right? Free from that. Then we all then we have already it's like our spiritual practice in terms of where we're going, it's based on our own experience. I don't really know what it is, but I know it ain't that. It isn't being burdened by shame, being burdened by guilt, being burdened by needing things to be different being burdened by wanting my life to turn out a particular way or wanting my partner to be this way or that way or wanting a a partner or wanting to get rid of a partner or wanting a body or wanting to get rid of something about my body. It's not that. It's being free of that neurotic activity. And it's almost like a, a cool breeze blows through the heart, like a, a sense of, how wonderful that space of my life, the space of the present moment, the space of the heart would be if it were empty of all of that constricted, heavy, obscuring activity. Can't you get some sense of a mind, a heart, a life not burdened with that self-centered activity. One of the reasons that scares us is we wonder, well, like, what would I do? But, you know, people often get confused about the Buddhist teachings and they think, well, you know, they misunderstand it and think, oh, you just become a blob and you just sit there. Because one of the training mechanisms is to sit still and to cultivate this present moment awareness and learn how to sustain this relaxed and clear present moment awareness. So people just draw the conclusion, oh yeah, I see where we're going. You're just sitting there, you know, and you just let the world pass by. 
But it's not that it's just not that at all. It's really sitting practice and sitting still is a training. Right? It's just we're going to kindergarten. It's not easy to be present, to sustain present moment awareness. So we create kindergarten, right? We say, okay, I'm gonna go to a quiet space, I'm gonna shut my cell phone off, I'm gonna put the cat or dog in the other room, I'm gonna tell my roommates to leave me alone. I'm not gonna be too sleepy. I'm not going to be too hyped on caffeine. I'm not going to be hungry or too full. I'm going to find a good time in the day. And I'm going to sit down in a room that's not too cluttered or a natural space, right? In a way that's not too uncomfortable, but not too comfortable so I fall asleep. And I'm going to, in those optimal conditions, I'm going to learn how to do this really simple things thing that's really hard to do. It's really simple, but very hard to do. I'm going to sustain present moment awareness. And I'll use whatever works, you know, you you know, use the breath and be aware of the whole body or open to hearing. Use words like this is being known. I'll do whatever works, you know, until I find my way, get a sense of how this very simple thing, really, there is nothing more simple than present moment awareness, but it is so not the habit of the mind that it turns out to be the hardest thing in the world, even though it's not complicated. Right? We know, because we can touch it for a moment, right? Can't you, for just a moment, sort of settle into the reality that hearing Mark's voice is being known? Feeling the body sitting is being known, or seeing the visual experience is being known. I mean, we can touch into that, but can you sustain that? No. Because very quickly the mind finds a way to turn it into some self centered activity, some little drama. I mean, generally the dramas aren't all the way over here in this really toxic, neurotic, heavy kind of experience. But. There's always some, we've all, we're very, the mind is very quick to frame it in terms of me and mine. It always stars I, the I, the me. This is happening to me. This is about me. Even when I'm thinking about you, it's kind of about me, like what I think about you or how your present is affecting me. One of the words that people use for this end, you know, over here where the mind is empty of greed, anger, and delusion, the mind is empty of neurotic activity, is the word nature, right? So this is nature where everything's just happening. This is also nature over here, by the way. But this is nature that involves the reflective part of the mind, which is also nature, the knowing, the awareness. And so this Nature understands that it's just nature happening and it's understanding that there's no trace, there's no distortion or there's no dukkha, friction in the system, right? So it's understanding the mind that's not resisting or afraid or reactive to nature being nature. So this is nature being nature This is nature being nature with friction, which is also nature, right? Or resistance. This is nature without the friction and the resistance. 
That's the only difference. Because this is always nature. A lot of people think when they hear the teachings on emptiness, it's like, okay, I'm here, I'm this neurotic guy, and I somehow have to get empty. I've got to empty myself out. No, no, it's just about understanding what this is. When you really understand what this is, like you're full of hate, or full of, full of shame, or full of neediness, wanting, lust, whatever it is, but when you really understand what that is, you end up over here. The difference between the two ends is this end, the mind isn't confused about everything being nature. This end, it's all nature happening, but part of what's happening in nature is this confused or misunderstanding that it's happening to me. This idea of a permanent, fixed self. And that's what creates the friction or the resistance or the sense of suffering. The sense of there being somebody who's suffering, somebody who's afraid, somebody who's in need, somebody who doesn't want things to be the way they are, somebody who wants things to be another way. That happens here. And what happens here is the mind is empty of that confusion or empty of that misunderstanding. So whatever is happening, even if, let's say, there's some, because of the force of habit, some neurotic thought like, uh, I don't like myself. Or you're looking in the mirror, I don't like the way my body looks, or something like that. But here, in this end of the spectrum, with wisdom active in the mind, the wisdom would know, that's just nature. That thought, I don't like the way my body looks, that's just a thought being known. And if there's some neurotic like tightening, energetic tightening, that's just that feeling being known. And it would sort of cut it off right there. Like the, you, the mind doesn't proliferate in neurotic ways unless there's attachment or identification with the content. Unless there's this framing that I'm thinking this, this is about me, right? That wrong view or that misunderstanding. But if the mind is understanding things as they are, that's just something being known. This is just nature. The nature of the mind to think, the nature of the mind to feel, the nature of the mind to see and hear and smell and taste and feel sensations. It's just stuff being known. And nothing outside of that, nothing more than that. So at this end of the spectrum, something is being known. At this end of the spectrum, I'm knowing, and I don't like, or I'm knowing, and I like, and I want to hold on, and I need to do this, I don't want to do that, you should do this, right? So in this point, the mind is fragmented into this sort of dualistic me and the world, good and bad. All of this exists here. All of that attachment or identification to those ideas fuels the cycles of suffering. One thought leading to the next. One neurotic thought leading to the next. So the Buddha says in so many ways during his 45 years of teaching that all of the contraction, all of the constriction, weight, psychic weight, existential suffering, 
all the heaviness is because of suf- uh, because of the suffering that arises with attachment or self-centered grasping. So you can check this out because you can't really understand a moment of the mind being empty of greed, anger, and delusion unless you understand the mind full of greed, anger, and delusion, right? You understand this and you've taken a really big step towards understanding freedom. So when you notice that, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm suffering, then get interested. Okay, the Buddha says that if there feels like there's somebody suffering, then the mind has to be attached. Self-centered grasping. So where's the self-centered grasping? This would be very. This would be a, another big step. If you can make that transition from just being a suffering human being to being a suffering human being who's interested in checking out the Buddhist teaching. Okay, the Buddha says that when there's suffering. There's got to be the activity of self-centered grasping or attachment. Where is it? You know, just look through the experience of the body and mind, what's right here and now. What is the mind attached to? What is the mind identified with? What is the mind taking personally? How is the mind constructing a story that involves a self, a me or a mine? Let me take a look at that as just something being known. So actually, here's the interesting thing. There's not really any distance between here and there. It seems like an infinite distance apart. Being a really neurotic, bound up, suffering human being compared to a moment of real freedom seems really far away. But we can, this is the real wonder of the practice, we could be a suffering human being and then the force of habit, mindful awareness can show up because we've been practicing. So now it just shows up in this moment when I'm a suffering human being. And what mindful awareness does is it sees, oh yeah, the mind is full, neurotic, self-centered grasping. The Buddha says that's the cause of suffering. Oh yeah, we confirm it directly. Oh yeah, the Buddha's right. There's the self-centered grasping. Here's the crunch or the weight, the burden and the heart and mind, right? The suffering. And you're just looking at it without taking it personally. Don't forget that point right there. That's the most important point because otherwise you're not practicing. Practicing means you're looking at the reality of the mind the way it is without taking it personally. Just like when we're training, sitting still, doing our daily sit, We feel the breath coming in. We feel the sensations of the whole body. We're aware of sensations, not in terms of, oh, this is my body. No. Sensations are being known. Pressure is being known. Warmth is being known. Coolness is being known. Vibration is being known. Whatever the sensations are, it doesn't matter. It's something being known. We're seeing sensations as something being known, not in terms of, the story of a me who has a body, who's meditating right now, trying to be in the present moment. So that's not mindfulness, that's thinking, which is going to happen. But then when you notice that, you realize, oh, that's just thinking being known. Thinking that I'm practicing, thinking about the practice is being known. Just thinking being known. We come back. Oh, sensation being known. So even if there's real suffering, if we turn it around 
and realize it's something being known, suffering being known, contraction being known, the unpleasantness of it being known, we start to transform the experience that's arising out of ignorance, framing our experience in terms of a separate self, a permanent self, we transform it to an experience of something being known. And the existential weight, the feeling of somebody being burdened, can evaporate very quickly. And the more you practice, you can go, you'll catch yourself. And I bet many people in this room could attest to this fact. And when we have time to share in just a few minutes, it'd be nice to hear from you. Can attest to the fact of noticing a moment of being really bound up, really suffering, really hurting, mindfulness kicking in, not taking the suffering uh, personally, seeing it for what it is, and then a moment of freedom. Something is being known. Know somebody it's happening to. It's just something being known. Something being known. Something being known. Now, saying it out loud like I'm doing right now, it just seems a little bit like magical thinking when you hear me saying what I just said. Like, how could that be? But you'll see in your own experience that it's true. I mean, one of the first places that shows up in practice is you've got some physical discomfort. Maybe you've been sitting for 20 minutes and your knee's really hurting or your back's really hurting. But you've got enough confidence and you're just just sitting with it and you're not getting confused by the aversion, right? So you're just staying with the unpleasant sensation without resisting it. And you're seeing the force of habit to want to dislike it but you're not. And so just that play between, for a few moments, really not liking the pain in your back, and you're, in that moment, a person who's meditating, who's feeling a lot of back pain, and is really looking forward to the sit being over. right? And so you're suffering. You're like leaning forward to the time when the sit's going to be over, how good that will feel, how stupid this practice is, or how you wish you started yoga when you were 12 and did an hour a day, every day, for all those years and how beautiful your body would be now and you know all these sort of things. You'd live to be 120 and you'd be happy and have a pleasant body until the moment you died and there would be no suffering. And, right? That's suffering. Just those thoughts and being attached to those thoughts is suffering. But then mindfulness kicks in sensations being known, and the whole drama of the pain being a personal problem pops, disappears in a moment. And it's like the heart, the whole problem of somebody not liking the pain in the back, that person disappears. And all that's left is awareness knowing this is being known. Throbbing, burning, tingling, whatever those actual sensations in the back are, being known, being known, being known, being known. But it's not landing anywhere. There isn't an ownership of sensation. What is pain when it doesn't belong to anybody? We think pain is personal, so it becomes a personal problem. What is pain when the mind is intimate with it, but isn't intimate in terms of that self-centered frame? It's just something being known. Whatever it is, heaviness or burning or twisting or aching, being known. 
What is that? You'll see, and some of you, like I said, can attest to this, being really burdened by physical pain, and then the next moment, no problem. No problem, no problem, no problem, no problem. And then, taking it personally again, and there's a problem. right? But the mind sees something that it's hard to forget. And this isn't just with physical pain. It can be with emotional pain. It can be with any disturbance of the mind and body. Seeing the difference between the mind taking it personally and reacting as if it's personal to a mind seeing it as just something being known. Empty of self. Empty of the sense of a permanent self to whom this is happening. Who owns this or has this or is feeling this. Now, Again, and people do this, they spend their lifetime thinking about this. Because it is, you know, philosophically kind of provocative and interesting. But you won't have any benefit. The real benefit comes from doing the practice, establishing the continuity of mindful awareness, using that stability of awareness to get interested of when there's some self-centered activity, self-centered grasping, attachment, noticing the heart feels burdened with it. Observing that experience of suffering without framing it in terms of self. This is being known. Sensation is being known. Sight is being known. Thought is being known. Right? It's just these elements of experience being known, being known, being known. And then the experience of being a human being radically shifts from something that felt felt like a burden, a problem for me, to an experience where there is no problem. It's okay. This is the peace the Buddha talks about. When we talk about spiritual peace or ease or release, or as the Buddha says, the unshakable release of the heart, that's the moment we're talking about. And the difference between a moment of that and a Buddha is that an awakened person, evidently, I'm not fully awake, but an awakened person is living this way all the time. And for people who've done a lot of practice, every once in a while we, we experience that freedom. And there's mindfulness in those moments so the mind knows when there's freedom, freedom is like this. Right? And for someone who doesn't practice, they still might bump into moments of freedom, but they don't recognize those moments. They don't know what that is. So that, like I said earlier, they think, well, that was nice for me, right? They don't connect the dots. So glad that happened to me. I'm going to tell my friend about what happened to me, right? So they just, whatever lightness, whatever ease, whatever natural love was there in that instant for a moment, they t- immediately take it personally and then get tight about it. Like Now they're burdened by having to tell their friend about what special thing happened to them. Or maybe if it was really kind of more significant, maybe I'll start a religion, you know, because it was such a special, you know, get a storefront and... <laughs> Or something like that, because we had, you know, it's like, that happened to me. I have something to say. And then it just sort of becomes a burden. There's like a saying in the tradition, there's nothing 
like a good sit to ruin a retreat, right? So if you're on a nine-day retreat and you have a really good sit, because then you spend or a moment in one sit, you had a really good moment in one sit, and then you spend the rest of the retreat wanting to get back there. That was such a nice moment. But the way back has nothing to to do with being a self who wants that experience again. It's exactly the opposite of that, right? It was a moment of the mind not being confused by its self-centered habits, its habit, habits of self-centered grasping. So I want to save the last 10 minutes to hear from a few folks. Trish has the mic. Remember to point it close to your mouth so we can hear you. Just raise your hand if you have any questions or maybe just sharing from your own practice. It's always nice to hear your name, if you would. Okay, if I can explain this. I don't know if I can. Uh, so if it's the continuity awareness, if I if I have that and I have, like you were saying, being fully awake all the time, What number one, what about memory? Yesterday I had this a sit where I went out to my dad's grave. This morning, my sit was my dad observing me, knowing what I was thinking in my sit. Where's the self in that? Yeah, so just remember the mind, we know this, right? The mind is an amazing thing, the thinking mind the mental activity, cognitive activity. It's amazing in terms of how it can construct meaning. And it's a combination with sort of the visual, uh, the images that can be created in the mind, how language, and then also emotion. So the combination of images and verbiage and emotional tone, right? So it's like, almost infinite, the kind of meaning that can arise. So the mind, the mental activity, is a little bit like uh, you know how we can feel sensation in the body, smoothness, warmth, coolness, heaviness, lightness. But the mind is many, many times more seductive and you know, compelling than sort of what the mind can construct versus what we smell, what we taste, what we see, what we hear, and, and what we feel in terms of sensation. But it's in the end, Dan, it's just something being known. And so it's not, you're not dismissing the meaning that came with that mental activity. There's nothing dismissive to say that's mental activity being known. And it's not even like you need those words. It's just realizing the truth. That's just mental activity being known. And that mental activity is image and it's content or verbiage and emotional tone and it's the dance of those three things, right? And there's some meaning that arises in the combination of those three three things. And the relevant thing is it's being known here and now in the space of the mind here and now in the space of the present moment. It's just this being known. So that's not dismissing the meaning that came in that moment. It's actually 
how we are intimate with the meaning. You're not for the meaning or you're not against it. You're just letting whatever that was have its moment. And it makes an impression on the heart, let's say, and then it's gone because something else is arising in the next moment, right? There's no stickiness. If there's stickiness, then there's a somebody who wants to hold on or somebody who has a problem with it not being clear enough, like what does this mean? That's neurotic activity. But that's okay because it's going to happen. But then wisdom can say, that's being known. So the grasping itself is being known. So don't worry if you start taking your experience personally because that's the deepest habit in the mind. It's going to happen. We're going to take thinking personally, seeing personally, hearing personally, touches personally. We're going to take our experience personally because it's the deepest habit in the mind. But when you notice that, realize that's just attachment being known. And it's like this now. Being attached, taking something personally, feels like this, looks like this, is like this. And then you're right back in the game of mindful awareness. When you learn that you can, wisdom can look at <clears throat> attachment as just something being known, you're ready, you're really a practitioner. When you think, I can't practice until I resolve this thing that I just had, this experience I had, you still think that you need a special experience in order to be mindful. But mindfulness doesn't care what's going on. You could be having the most sublime experience in the world and you can realize this is something being known or the most ordinary experience being known. This is something being known. Mindfulness, the next moment of practice doesn't depend on what the moment is like. It's really depending on whether you trust this process of being aware, this is being known, being intimate. It's really this sense of being intimate. And you can't be intimate when the mind is involved in the experience. You have to be in the space of open awareness, non-attachment. Yeah, thanks, Dan, for bringing that up. Time for a couple more. What else would you like to ask or share from your own experiences? Yeah, want to pass it over to Kermit? Uh, thank you. Uh, this is about, I know you've talked about this before, but I don't think I get it. Um, uh, physical attraction and neurotic thinking. All right. If you've ever used a dating site, that's that's like the three mental poisons on steroids. I mean, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like swipe left for aversion. Swipe right for craving and delusion, you know? <laughs> I guess a lot of people use that site. <laughs> Is it possible to experience physical attraction or seek that out or have it play out without any neurotic thinking? Or is that why people put on robes? Well, that's one of the reasons people become monastics. It's, it's obviously, you know, high-level, right? High-level practice. But the thing about high-level practice, those places in our life where there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of momentum for greed, anger, and delusion, the suffering uh, 
helps sustain present moment awareness. So instead of the suffering, the tension, right, the tightness, can really be a strong support for do, doing the best you can to sus, sus, sustain the practice. So when you're about to, is it Tinder that you do that? Is that what that site is? Oh, maybe they're all like that. I don't really. I I got married before there was internet, so. <laughs> <laughs> and I and I'm a devoted partner. So anyway, I don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> but I knew I do know something about greed, anger, and delusion. And lust doesn't go go away, of course, when you you know you're in a committed relationship. It's just that you have these sort of um, commitments that serve as a restraining force in the heart and mind, right? That you can either heed or ignore, you know, to your own peril. So the thing about those places that are really charged with greed, anger, and delusion, if we can remind ourselves to notice the unpleasantness. See, the thing about doing something like that, there's a lot of juiciness in it, right? And the juiciness can help the mind ignore the suffering that's right there as well. So if you can just remind yourself, probably be easier to start with something a little less seductive, like when you look at a catalog, right? Or you're on the Amazon site looking at things, right? So not quite as charged as something that also involves our conditioning around sexual attraction. And then you remind yourself, okay, I'm going to be looking for some slacks or something like that. There may be some attachment, you know, some suffering. So let me be on the lookout for getting tight. Right? So then, and that will really help that being aware that it hurts because it, it will make the mind curious. Like, oh, this is interesting. Like, the tightness, this is interesting. Because it's basically your question, Kermit. Can I look for a pair of slacks? Can I look for a sexual partner or a lifelong partner without suffering? What would that look like? I mean, start with something easy. Can I be aware of the in-breath without suffering? Can I feel the whole body without adding layers of suffering? Can you get yourself home tonight without... Uh, reinforcing or justifying or sustaining contraction. You're going to get contracted, but when you notice it, are you willing to stop feeding that pattern? Is there a way to stop feeding that pattern? Right. So you turn the news on when you get in your car, for example, and there's some story. When you start to proliferate, and, and the only way you're going to catch yourself is if you have enough sustained present moment awareness and the continuity of awareness has been trained to be interested in the thing that's most interesting. What's the most interesting thing in the whole world? Suffering. That not suffering theoretically as a concept. Suffering as as like the best description I've heard from a a, a very well-known Thai Buddhist monk meditation master. That squeeze on the heart, that energetic contraction tightness. If you can cultivate a balanced, sustained present moment awareness and then train that continuity of awareness to be interested in the most interesting thing, is this heart tight 
or is his heart released? Is his heart full of tightness or empty of tightness? Right? This is emptiness again. Because as the Buddha says, this is the only thing that matters. This is the only thing he taught. Suffering and the end of suffering. But suffering not as a concept, but the crunch in the heart and the heart that is empty of that crunch, that squeeze. And if you can get interested in that, more interested in that than the idea that of sex or the idea of lifelong love, then you might have moments where you, you can do that without suffering. But you have to be interested in the suffering. If we're oblivious to the suffering, no, we can't do that without suffering. We actually have to put suffering front and center. If you get good at getting home, sustaining this, then try going to the refrigerator and really looking, observing suffering, full of suffering, empty of suffering, full of tension, empty of tension. As you look at the fridge, as you go to the internet, as you look at your partner or your cat, you know, because in relationship, all that stuff comes up again. Thanks for comment, Kermit and Dan. And let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Letting go of the words. And appreciating all the women, all the men, all the folks before us who had busy, complicated lives, lived in difficult times, yet they did their practice as best they could. And in this way, one generation after another, people have been passing on these teachings and modeling wisdom and compassion. And now it's our turn to do the best we can to hear the teachings, to reflect, integrate the teachings, and to realize the insights of these teachings and to become part of the causes and conditions for these teachings continuing for the next generation. So may this be so. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.